Before we pray, I want to mention that this is Memorial Day weekend. And we want to be those who are thankful and respectful and appreciative and honoring to those who have served and especially those who have given their lives for the sake of our country, service men and women. And so as we pray here at the beginning, we want to thank God for them. If you currently serve or have served, we are thankful for you. And this weekend, we are especially thankful for those, as I've said, who lost their lives serving our country. What a sacrifice. And may it be us, as citizens, who know how to live in appreciation for those who have truly given their all for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Memorial Day weekend. We thank you, God, that some people's lives we remember this weekend because they gave themselves for our sakes. For the good of their country, God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for those service men and women who represent uh, the USA now. We thank you for those who used to, and we especially thank you for those who died in the cause. Father, may we be uh, mindful of what it takes for us to have this freedom. God, we thank you for it. God, we pray your blessing even now on those who are serving currently, that you would protect them and keep them safe and lead them to serve well. Father, we here at church this Sunday morning are here to worship. We're here to worship you, God. And we look to your word now that you would instruct us, that it would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that we would hear the truth and respond to it, setting our eyes fully upon Jesus Christ, our Lord, God, King, and Savior. Father, we're here and we're ready. We ask for you to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 11. It's page 932 in the Pew Bible. In the Black Pew Bible, page 932, Mark chapter 11. This passage and then next week's passage and the passage from last week all go together. These are passages about worship and what it means to really be focused on God. I want you to know that everything in life is to be about worship. You must, must understand this. We are in a really big, dangerous situation if we think that anything religious or anything church life can be good if it is not worship, and that's just not the case. It's either worship or it's not, and we must stay focused on that. These three passages are about true worship. Jesus cursed a fig tree last week. Today he cleanses the temple. And next week he'll look back to explaining uh, the fig tree in light of the cleansing of the temple. Today's passage or, or sermon I have in the bulletin I put not in my house. And when I put that, my first thought thinks about a big man in basketball protecting the paint or being a rim protector. But I won't use any more sports illustrations. My children love going to their grandparents' house, whether it be Val's parents who live in Gastonia, North Carolina, or my parents who live in Charlotte, North Carolina. They love to go there. The kids love to go. Carolina has already asked me, can you just take us down to Mama and Papa's house 
Uh, she doesn't realize that it's an eight-hour drive, some 500 miles, but she keeps wanting to go there. And they have so many reasons why they like going there. It's fun, and I think uh, their grandparents spoil them more than their parents do, and uh, it's something different, and it's fun, and, and, um, and they really enjoy it. But I remember one time uh, several years ago when I believe J.J. and Eli were, were three or four years old, and, and we were there, and uh, my dad really likes Doritos chips, and, and my kids also like Doritos chips, and, and I kind of get frustrated at Doritos chips because they're so orange, right? And when little kids eat a lot of chips, their hands are covered in this orange stuff, and as soon as they go touch the couch or the carpet or anything else, it is then orange. And y'all are familiar with this, right? Well, at our house, we haven't done too good a job of saying not in the living room, and so they're allowed to. Well, my parents have white carpet at their house, and y'all can see where I'm going, and they gave uh, JJ and Eli like a little bowl or or cup of of Doritos potato chips, and they took off right for the living room, and my my dad in the kind of... uh, Little, going a little overboard, loud, kind of yelling at them, jumping on them, uh, yelled at them and said, no, what, what are you doing? You're not, you're not going in there. You're gonna, if you're going to eat those, you're going to stay in the kitchen, which is a rule they had not heard before, unfortunately. And one of them, I don't recall if it was J.J. or Eli, one of them turned around and said, well, at our house, our daddy lets us eat in the living room. <laughs> to which he replied, well, I don't know what your daddy does at your house, but this isn't his house, right? This is my house, and you're not going to do that in my house. Y'all know how that goes. It may not be Doritos potato chips, but I, I would bet those conversations have happened in your homes as well. And it's not a big stretch, y'all. God makes that sort of statement in our passage today. God made the temple for his people to come and worship. To worship freely, to worship purely, to worship rightly. God made the temple so they could come and worship with their hearts and their minds and their faith, with their sins in mind with the conviction of sins, God made the temple that they would come, here it is, the Passover feast, and they would do what God had taught them to do. They would offer their sacrifices, and they would worship God. And Jesus, as you know here in Mark chapter 11, is in the final days of his life. This is Monday or Tuesday of his last week. He will die on Friday, crucified, On that Good Friday, Jesus enters the temple and sees a gigantic enterprise, a busyness of business with a whole lot going on except worship. And he gets angry. Not a sinful anger, a good anger, a righteous anger, a healthy anger, if you will, and he drives them In other words, God says, not in my house. 
Read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 11, beginning of verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. I've kind of been nervous all week about this. Really the last two weeks because I knew this was coming. Churches are interesting things. Now for clarity, I think y'all know this. We're not a temple, right? We're not a temple. We're a church. And there's a difference. But we still come here for worship, right? We gather together. We worship 24-7. I think you know that or we're supposed to. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is the attitude of your heart. Worship is the way your heart is to be trusting and leaning and standing and resting in God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness through Jesus. How your heart is believing in that at all times is worship. And we are worshipers, true worshipers in spirit and in truth like Jesus described in John 4. But God has taught us in the Bible that real believers in God should meet together. The Bible prescribes that that would be done on the first day of the week. And so Christians, for as long as there have been Christians, have met on Sundays for worship. We're not doing something today that is foreign to us or that we don't do on Saturdays or what we're not going to do tomorrow. We're going to worship. Our affections are going to be set on Jesus. We are going to look to him. We're going to trust in him. We're going to uh, live in obedience toward him. We're going to interact with other people because of him. We are worshipers in all that we do. But this moment, we are gathering with other people in Fairdale that are like-minded. We're not the only church in Fairdale, but we're going to gather with other people in and around Fairdale who are like-minded to worship together. What we do here today, in many ways, is what I should have been doing yesterday with my family and what I should be doing tomorrow with my family. We're worshiping God. What makes this unique and different is that we're doing it with all of us together, and the Bible describes what a worship service of gathered people will look like. This is worship. Even with language that may not be that popular anymore, this is a worship service. We scheduled this today, 1045 on Sunday morning, for anybody and everybody who wants to, who hopes in Christ, to meet here together and worship. And honestly, it is for saved people. This is for Christians. We are here to worship. We've designed everything that we're doing here today so that Christians together can worship our God. Now, there may be people here who aren't Christians, or aren't Christians yet, or aren't truly followers of Christ, or never been saved, or not forgiven of their sins. There may be some people here who aren't committed yet, and that's, that's fantastic. But they, they are here to learn or to observe what Christians do. This is a service for people that worship God. 
And so this passage where he cleanses the temple, while it is a Jewish temple for, for people to come and worship, and so there is a little bit of a difference there, it is still directed straight at worship. Worshippers. Last week, the passage right before, 12 through 14, you had Jesus traveling and he was hungry and he saw a tree that looked like it was ready for food and so he goes and finds no fruit on it and so Jesus curses the fig tree and kills it. And we wondered, well, what was that? And we came to find out that here was the problem. The tree looked like it should have fruit on it, but it didn't. And we understand that what Jesus is doing there is a a, a parable, if you will, warning us to not be people who are supposedly all religious or or all Christian or all Baptist or all churchy and yet not have fruit in our lives. What an ugly scene for us to be those who claim God, who, who, who have the audacity to set our alarm clocks on a weekend day to get here on a Sunday morning when we have so many other things that we could be doing. I mean, for after all, this is Memorial Day weekend. Couldn't we all be at the lake or doing something fun or going swimming or something like that? Why even are we here? Because we want to worship God. But Jesus is warning that wanting that appearance or thinking that those check marks are piling up some merit or favor with God without a heart that is trusting him is bad. The tree looked like it should have fruit. It didn't have fruit, so he cursed it. And it really wasn't anything to do with the tree. It was an object lesson for the church. Don't let that be you. We see right after that, they're still traveling. They come to Jerusalem, and he enters the temple. I want to give you two simple points this morning. Very, very simple, yet weighty. Number one, God hates sin. The difference between how authentic our church is or how healthy our church is will be the difference between whether we get this or not. To the extent that you as church members hate your sins. I saw an indictment on the church this week, a quote that I read, and it said, the world doesn't believe the Bible because the church doesn't obey the Bible. That hurts, doesn't it? If you're okay with disobedience in your life, then then we have a problem and we don't understand that God hates sin. God is offended by our sins. Number one, God hates sin. Number two, God is about his worship, his glory. Two points, God hates sin and God is about his worship. So God hates sin. God is offended by our sins. Jesus enters the temple, and it wasn't at all, listen to me, it wasn't at all enough for him to say, I'm not sure what the rest of them are doing, but I'm not going to be distracted. I'm just going to make sure I stay in my own lane and I worship today. I'm not going to worry about what everybody else is doing. I'm going to do my own thing. That's between them and God. I'm going to worship. He didn't do that. Now, Jesus, in a roundabout way, is the very object of who they're worshiping, isn't he? 
I told you last week in that question, is Jesus God? And the answer is yes. But is God Jesus? And the answer is no. You remember that? And so they're not exactly worshiping Jesus, but they're worshiping God. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is God. And so in a roundabout way, Jesus is the one deserving of their worship there. And so he is ultra, ultra offended by what he finds and is going on. And it's not enough for him to say, I'll just let it pass or I won't deal with it. Remember, he is just days away from taking the full brunt Focus, devoted, wrathful, vengeance, payment for sin. He is just days away from crying out to God, let this cup pass from me, right? He is just days away from being beaten and spit in his face and plucked his beard. He is just days away from being nailed to the cross. And let me remind you that there were three giant nails that were able to go through here and go through here and cross his legs over and a nail big enough to go in the front leg, out the front leg, in the back leg, out the back leg, through both legs and all the way into a cross for Jesus to be hung there. He's just days away from that. And if you're wondering why did he do it, why did that have to happen, why did God let it happen, why did Jesus die for our sins, the simple answer is for that's how big of a deal sin is God killed his son for sinners and it took the punishment of sin it's almost an understatement to say that God hates sin I need to say it more often God is offended by our sins J.C. Ryle says that God takes notice of men's behavior in places of worship And all irreverence or profanity is an offense in his sight. We ought to be careful with the way we live if we're describing ourselves as worshipers. And you and I ought to place some attention on how we behave here in this worship setting. But you need to be reminded from me that it's not this place that makes it worship. I've already explained that. It's not this place that makes it worship. It is our lives. For after all, the Bible says that we are the temple of God. God doesn't live here at 413 Fairdale Road. God lives inside of his people who are born again. He takes up residence inside of those who have bent their knee and confessed with their mouth that Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and if Jesus is your number one your Lord and Savior then God lives inside of you and J.C. Ryle is reminding us here that God is aware he is watching he sees the way worshipers behave and he is bothered and offended in his sight by irreverence or or profanity do you remember that passage it's in the very next chapter Mark chapter 12 if you'll turn over to verse 41 of Mark 12 do you remember this passage the widow's offering Mark 12 verse 41 he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box wow that's a little bit uncomfortable isn't it I try my best to not look around. I'm, I'm kind of nervous to even turn around during the Lord's Supper or during the offering. I don't want to see who's putting money in the plate or not, and I don't. I'm so conscious of it that when I put my offering envelope in there, I turn it upside down. I don't want y'all to see how much I put in there. 
how little or how big. It says Jesus sat down just to watch. Just to watch the offering. Many rich people put in large sums. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. One penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I point out that passage not to make a big point about offering, But to make you aware to what I'm pointing out here from Jesus cleansing the temple, that God hates sin and God is offended by our sins. And we are never, listen to me, we are never to look at our good works as something that is earning us favor in the sight of God. Instead, we are to look at Jesus Listen, we are to look at Jesus as our Lord and Savior who died for us. And we are to trust wholeheartedly by faith in him, who he is and what he's done. And we are to believe and know and be content and satisfied that God loves us and is pleased with us and is delighted in us all because of Jesus. And when Jesus is our everything, truly our everything, then all of our obedience, all of our good works, all of our sacrifices, everything we do is just fruit. It's just the the outcoming that comes from us because of how much we love Jesus and because of how great Jesus is and because of how much we understand that God loves and accepts us based off of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is able to sit, sit back and look at this offering And anybody in the world that doesn't understand grace and Jesus and what worship really is would have a hard time understanding how could Jesus be happier of one penny given than thousands or millions of dollars. And he was. Because the whole thing to God is about worship. Believe it or not, God doesn't need any money. All God is looking for is worshipers, people whose hearts are in the right place. So this kind of changes the game, doesn't it? You and I are to understand that God hates sin. He's offended by our sins. And we need to start thinking not, well, I've done this or I've done that, or God must really like me today because I went to Sunday school, and get away from those thoughts and start asking ourselves the heart behind what we're doing. Any idea that says, well, I, well I'm, I'm always giving, is missing the point, isn't it? Jesus walks into the temple and sees a business going on under the, 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 the enterprise, if you will, of worship. And he hates it. 
what is going on in here? What is happening? So he began to drive them out. He went to the people that are selling and said, get out of here. He went to the people that are buying and said, get out of here. He went to the people who were sitting at tables with all of their stuff spread out, and he turned the tables over. It it really is a picture, if you will, of money going all over the place, animals going all over the place, stuff going all over the place, and Jesus is the one that calls it. It really is a disruptive scene. Jesus is the one who did it. John MacArthur goes to great length in explaining this scene. Follow along with me as I read. He says, so Jesus entered the temple. Now, where would he have gone when he entered the temple? Well, he would have gone in one of the gates, and the temple is a series of layers rising up to the top of Mount Moriah. At the very top of Mount Moriah is the naos, the holy of holies, the holy place, the pinnacle, the high point, surrounded by a wall. Only the high priest goes in there once a year. Then sequential courtyards go down the hill, lower than that at the top. First is the court of the priest where they offer the sacrifice. Then the court of the Israelites. Then the court of the women. Then the massive, listen to me, the massive court of the nations or court of the Gentiles, which is where he would be this time. It would hold hundreds of thousands of people, a massive place. And there would be all kinds of shops there. There would be the bazaars of Annas. They were, they were called because the priests made money there. They were in commiseration with business people, people who provided the goods for them. Listen to this. They needed oil and wine and salt for the sacrifices. They needed animals for the sacrifices. So they had these vendors set up to help people worship. Yet they did it for the prophets, and they split the prophets. He says this place was a buzz. It was a cacophony of noises made by people and animals. And he went into it, and it says that he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. First of all, those buying and selling were buying and selling animals. There were people who were bringing their animals in. They were being bought, and then they were being sold to the people who came to offer sacrifices. It was a scam of the rankest kind because, listen, if you brought a sacrifice from home, let's say you brought a lamb without blemish and without spot from your own flock, and you brought that to the temple to give us a sacrifice, there would have to be a priest who would have to pass the animal. He would have to give approval to the animal before you could worship it. And all the priest had to do was say, uh, sorry, this animal doesn't pass. This animal's not good enough for sacrifice. You're going to be required to purchase another one. An animal from the vendors inside the temple at ten times, ten times the price. Then you would also be required to, ha- to the half-shekel temple tax. You know they probably were taxing. in a certain kind of coinage. And then pilgrims came from all kinds of nations when they would come for the Passover. And if you didn't have the right kind of coinage, you'd have to exchange your coins. And the markup was, according to one historian, as much as 25% markup. If you were poor, you could give a dove as a sacrifice. According to the provision of God's law in Leviticus 12, poor people were allowed to give just a dove. And doves in their economy would sell for five cents at your local town. But if you bought one in the temple, a five-cent dove at the temple, they would say it would be four dollars. This is a perversion. 
prostitution, travesty, extortion, monopoly, just a horrendous operation, noise, traffic. It was anything but a house of prayer. Jesus went in and Jesus ripped all into this. He started driving out the people, buying and selling, the people bringing in their animals and taking them out. Jesus hated what he found going on in the temple under the description of worship. MacArthur goes on to say, there could be as many as a quarter of a million animals, lambs actually, slain during the Passover. He says we have a record of that in some of our ancient records. There would be animals all over the place, rejected animals, accepted animals. He drove them all out. He overturned the tables. He started kicking over stools in which the money changers sat, thrown over their tables, scattering their money everywhere, debris flying all over this massive courtyard with hundreds of thousands of people in it and throwing over the stools that the dove sellers were sitting on. Every crook, every exploiter of the poor, and all the rotten Sadducees and priests that oversaw the operation fell under his attention and authority. Jesus hated it. Now it's an ugly scene, but I want to remind you, it wasn't an ugly scene out in the middle of town. It wasn't in a neighborhood. It wasn't. It was the temple that was supposed to be for worship. And he hated it. J.C. Ryle says that that Lord still lives. He still watches. That Lord still lives who cast out buyers and sellers from the temple. And he may be seeing the same conduct today. Are you aware of your sins? Do you ever pretend church? You ever come to church and try to do something that you know people will like? Only to go home and do things that you know that God doesn't like? You ever had a foul mouth in the car on the way to church and then tried your best to not have one here? Have you ever tried to present yourself in a better light in front of me as if it matters what I think? Have you ever thought to yourself, it doesn't matter how we live, we'll just get ourselves cleaned up before Sunday? God is offended by our sins. One of the neat things about parenting is that you really grow in love for your kids. You really, really do. We have a family in the church right now where one of their little kids is sick. And as I was talking to the dad, I was just expressing to him, I know this isn't that bad, and I know it's not life-threatening or anything like that, but doesn't it just weigh so heavy on you and your wife's heart? The kid will get better. The doctor's already seen him. But as a parent, you just feel for your kid. You just hate to see them suffering. And I've learned with our children that realistically, and I mean this, 
worse than the punishment. Worse than the spanking, or worse than the no Xbox, or worse than the you're not going outside, or worse than whatever the punishment is, sometimes, is knowing that I'm disappointed. And I'm serious, I know sometimes you might think you're right, but sometimes that's real. At this stage of my life, there's not any punishment or discipline that my parents could do to me that would in the slightest way hurt more than knowing that I would have let my parents down. I'm 37 years old and my parents are in their 60s. And it would hurt me to the core if I offended them. If I was living or talking or acting in a way that they didn't like or approve of. Y'all, and that's just my earthly relationships. I've got a father in heaven that loves me better than my mother and father here. I've got a father in heaven that has done more for me than my mother and father here, which that's a big statement, is it not? Because I've got a good mom and dad. Our father in heaven loves us. He will forgive us of our sins no matter how many times we sin. If our hope is in Christ. And he is teaching us here today that we offend him when we sin. When we don't trust him. When we disobey him. When we're prideful and haughty. When we neglect him. When we ignore him. He is offended. May we see in this passage today, we're not used to seeing Jesus get mad. Remember last week when he cursed the fig tree and I turned you to Matthew 23? Do you remember that? And he's looking at them and saying, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. He's just laying into them. I had somebody say to me last week after the sermon, man, Jesus was mad. He was. He was mad, rightly so, because they were not worshiping God. And if you think you've seen him mad before, just wait. There's a worse mad scene coming, folks. These worshipers here had the opportunity to leave that place, have a light bulb, eye-opening experience, and to come back with repentant hearts. There's coming a day when God in his beautiful and good and right anger will say, no more. No more offending your creator. Church, you today need to get a grip on offending God. You need to be bothered by the way that your lives offend God. 
You need to see that he did this there, and you need to cry out to God and say, God, I don't want to ever upset you like that. You need to look to Jesus for forgiveness. You need to run to Jesus to be right with him. This attitude of, well, I mean, everybody sins. I'm not the worst person in the world. It's not that bad. I could be worse. Those type of excuses are worldly. People who aren't Christians say those things. We ought to be convicted over anything that offends God. God hates sins. He was offended by our sins. Why? Because he's so committed to his worship. This is the second point. He's so committed to the worship of God. Now we talk about this a lot, right? God is passionate about God. God is passionate about his glory. In John chapter 17, when Jesus has his amazing high priestly prayer and he prays through all of John 17 and he's praying for this and he's praying for that and it's like this huge awesome passage of Jesus praying. The first thing he prays, after he's going to pray for us, he's going to pray for them, he's going to pray for his people, he's going to pray for the lost people, he's going to pray for unity, he's going to pray for all that. But the very first thing that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 is Father, glorify your son. He is passionate about God glorifying God. He is passionate about worship. That's the focus. He makes it very clear in the book of Isaiah, I created you for my glory. God is about his worship. He's about his glory. Look back to the passage. Verse 17, this is interesting. It's hard to picture it, right? He was teaching them, it says. As he was doing that, cleansing the temple, running people out in the midst of all the chaos, Mark writes, this was a lesson. This was a teaching lesson. There's something for you to learn here. As he was teaching them, he said this. Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. Now this is interesting because this passage is in all the Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and it's in John. Most of them are at the end, right before he's going to die. John has one at the very beginning of his ministry, and I said that last week. Jesus here says two things. The first is, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. God has a house. God has a place that he calls his that is designed for strictly worship. And what was so upsetting to him was not so much, listen to me, was not so much how bad the people were but rather how wrong the people are. If all you know about sin is that it's bad, then you'll start debating with yourself on varying degrees of badness and sin, won't you? And I'm guilty of this, and you are too. We say about people who we know are completely wrong in some of their living, but we'll say, yeah, but they, they really are such a good person. 
We ought not to think about sin as bad because of how bad it is, but rather because of how wrong it is. We are supposed to be worshiping God. Replacing worship with disobedience is horrible. And it may not be that bad, but it is that wrong. From most people's perspectives, I'm a decent husband. I get that. We're going on 12 years, haven't given up yet. Somehow she's sticking it out. Most people's perspective, I'm a decent husband. But day to day in my own heart and mind, I feel like such a failure, so prideful, so judgmental, so hard to get along with. I really think I make life harder on Val. It's not that bad, but it's that wrong. I'm supposed to be a husband to my wife the way God is a husband to me, his bride, the church. It's not about how bad it is. It's about how wrong it is, people. And you don't think about, you do think about how bad. I know you do. We all talk like that. But you don't think about how wrong until you understand God and worship and it being about him. That's why conservative Christians, I'm not talking about political conservatives, conservative Christians, people like me and hopefully like you who believe the Bible and are committed to it. That's why so many people dismiss us as being too into it or over the top or too strict or too conservative. Because all they know is to think about it is it's not that bad or it's not that important, it's not that big of a deal. But to me, we're talking about offensive living to God when it should be worship to God. People in the community might think that I'm a great dad, but when I look at what God says a dad to be is, I'm thinking I got a lot of work to do. Because it's not about good or bad, it's about right or wrong and worship to God. Jesus walks into the temple, and if he was thinking of not that bad, he could have encouraged himself, well, well, at least they're here, and at least they're trying, and at least they brought the money, and at least they saved the money, and at least they're trying to worship, and at least they're doing this, and at least they know what the Bible says. And he could have gone on and on with how not how bad it is. But he didn't. He was irate. He was furious. He was offended to the core. Not because it was so bad, but because it was so incredibly wrong. This was to be about God, and it was about everything else in the world except God. Yes, it was religious. Yes, it was Jewish. Yes, it was according to the Bible. Yes, there was giving, and yes, there was sacrifice, and yes, there were good works, and yes, there was all of this stuff under the name of God, under religion, but it wasn't worship to God, and that made it wrong. And some of us are in church, and we got a Bible at the house, and we listen to Christian radio, and we go on and on and on and on, and like God cares if your heart is not right. We meet here at 9 o'clock every Sunday morning to pray. I'd love for some of y'all to start coming. We need to pray more and more and more as a church. And this morning as I sat down there with that group of people praying at 9 o'clock because Sunday school starts at 9.30, my my sons come with me and they're sitting in there and they're just sitting there. And I was so bothered by this passage in raising children. 
If I make church about anything else other than worship, I'm damaging my kids. Do you understand that? If they have to sit quiet just because I said so, or sit quiet because y'all are going to get mad if they're running in church, or if all of these rules rise to the top and become more of a priority than worship to God, then we've missed it and we're correct, creating in them trouble. And so this morning we prayed And the other guys that were down there prayed that passages like this would get into our hearts, that we would not lose perspective, and that everything we do would be about worship, be about Jesus. So what Jesus is teaching them here, he comes out and he quotes Isaiah 56. Turn there. That was our call to worship. Turn there. We're almost done, but hold on tight. We're going to finish strong here. Isaiah 56, it says that while Jesus was doing that, he was teaching them and he said, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting Isaiah. Now, it is is just absolutely mesmerizing and fascinating that Jesus is so familiar with the Old Testament. He knows it through and through. The very next sentence that he says, But you've made it a den of robbers, is not from Isaiah. It's from Jeremiah chapter 7, and we're going to turn there in just a second. So Jesus, in the midst of this heated, hostile, confrontational scene, right, which which we would all be uncomfortable with, is teaching at the same time. Don't y'all know what Isaiah says? Don't y'all know what Jeremiah says? Look at Isaiah 56. Keep justice. Do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. But then the passage goes into this talk about foreigners. And when Jake had his opening prayer, he had a good application about it, that we are like foreigners. But folks, listen to me. This passage is not exactly about a spiritual foreigner. This passage is about Gentiles in the midst of Jews. This passage is about real, international, not from there, foreigners. Part of the reason why Jesus was so offended in the temple was that those who were close to God we're making it more difficult for those far from God to worship. Look at Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate, separate me from his people. 
Isaiah is saying, y'all, when God accepts a Gentile, somebody that's not a Jew, somebody that's from any other nation in the world other than Judaism, when somebody is from there and God accepts them in, they are not going to be separated. God is very inclusive, if you will, of people from all different places. He says it again. Jump down to verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. God loves foreigners. And if you haven't embraced that yet, let me remind you that every single one of you are the foreigners in this passage. You are the refugees. You are the immigrants. You are the non-Jews that Isaiah is prophesying. You are the ones that Jesus is recalling in, 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 in Mark chapter 11 when he says, My house is a house for all peoples. Church, if you do not understand that, then you are blinded. God is about all peoples. And if God's about all peoples, then we must be about all peoples. And you look down to verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God loves, loves worship from everybody. Loves it. This past week was the last. Turn over to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. This past week was the last week of school. I think y'all know that. Summer break is officially here. And Eli asked me to go on a field trip with his class. They got to go on a field trip to Fairdale Park. And they walked from the Fairdale Elementary School through all the construction down here to the park. And, and I got to go and I met them up there. And we played basketball, we played some soccer, we played some football. Everybody just playing up here at the park and it was awesome. I took a couple pictures of Eli and his buddies there, and I think we had probably 12 kids playing a soccer game. We probably had another 12 kids playing a basketball game. In every picture, there's like one white kid. It was awesome. I need more situations in my life that are like that. If I want to be like God, Very much so open and welcoming and loving toward all peoples. I need more situations in my life. Folks, listen to me. An elementary school kid growing up going to Fairdale Elementary School is less racist and less judgmental than people that are our age. Which means they are more like God coming naturally from them than they are like us. He could have stopped the quote in cleansing the temple with, my house is a house of prayer. He could have left it at worship, but he didn't. He reminded us, this is about all peoples. The setting, if you will, was the court of the Gentiles. Now, we know that there is offensive worship going on in all parts of the temple, but this setting was the one with the Gentiles. But now I told you to look at Jeremiah 7. This is what he said next. Now look at this. This is where worship is out of line. 
It's verse 11 where he says, Has this house, which is called by, by, by my name, become a, become a den of robbers in your eyes? But start reading with me at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Everybody see that? So he has asked I, Jeremiah to post up at the gate of the temple. I want you to stand where everybody's about to walk, walk by, and I want you to be a megaphone. I want you to tell this as they're walking in. So he's about to address those coming to worship. Listen to this passage. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship. There's our word, right? Worship the Lord. You're coming to the temple to worship, supposedly. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, they were so proud of themselves that they went to worship regularly. Listen to me. They were so proud of themselves that they went to worship regularly that they were to say, yep, went to church, yep, did my thing, yep, went to worship, yep, gave my sacrifice, yep, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Yeah, I go to the temple of the Lord. I go to church every week. They said those type of things. And Jeremiah has been posted up at the gate of the temple and said, don't trust in that. We have a church full of people all over the world who are trusting in all that they think they're doing for God, and yet their heart's not in the right place. And so it's not worship. Keeps going, verse 4. For if you truly amend five, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner. Again, the traveling foreigner. Or the fatherless, those who don't have parents, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. The words are the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They think because they are doing some of the things that God says to do that they are right with God and they are not. Look what Jeremiah says, verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters the temple, and that passage comes to mind. He was offended by their sins because he was committed to worship. Do you remember just two weeks ago the triumphal entry when Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Remember that on a donkey? Remember that? Mark didn't say it, but Luke did. Do you remember when everybody was crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Do you remember that? In Luke, it tells us that some people came up and tried to stop them from saying that. And they even told Jesus to tell them to be quiet. Do you remember that? Do you remember what Jesus' response in? I think it's Luke 19, 40. 
if these people don't cry out and worship me, the rocks will. The rocks will. Jesus is committed to the worship of God. And if people don't worship him, he'll be sure that creation does. But you and I know that. And we understand that God is working in our midst. We understand that God loves us and he forgives us of our sins. And I want to call you today from this passage to be worshipers. There is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that churches do. We're a busy church. There are people here every day of the week and there's always stuff going on. We're always trying to feed people. We're always trying to help. We're always being involved in church. For as much as that is a great thing, it is also a dangerous thing. We must make sure it is about worship. It is about worshiping God. A.W. Tozer says, wherever the church has come out of her lethargy, rising from her sleep into the tides of revival, always worshipers were behind it. There are a lot of dying churches, aren't there? A lot of declining churches. A lot of hurting, struggling churches. Folks, the answer is not found in you need to do this better or you need to do that more. The answer truly is when the people start worshiping God truly from the heart because Jesus is Lord, a Savior of sinners who forgives of sins. Let's hear the warning today. God is offended by our sins because he is committed to worship. And may God give us a heart for that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage in Mark chapter 11. Thank you, God, for the reality that we see Jesus here responding to religious life that is not worship. Father, help us with this. God, help us to be able to come to your word and submit ourselves and to learn from it. God, help us to not want to offend you. Help us, God, to want our lives to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.